Turn there, if you would, please, and we're continuing the study of the 8th chapter, and what we're looking at here are the activities of Jesus immediately after he had finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you remember, there are... There were many, many people that were following Jesus. There were large crowds wherever he went. There was much sickness and disease. There were no hospitals in those days, and there wasn't any modern medicine like we know of today. And so the whole country was just filled with people of all, had all different sorts of terrible health problems. And Jesus was not a selective healer. He made no demands when people came to him. He didn't require that they had great acts of faith. He never asked for an offering from anyone. Nobody had to give him seed faith money in order to get their miracle. But he just went about the country healing all of those people that he came in contact with. And all of that, all these miracles that Jesus did, that were validation of his kingship, that he is the king who's come to the earth. And that is Matthew's theme throughout the whole gospel, the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so if you ever wanted to get a view of what the kingdom of God will be like when it comes upon this earth, and Christ is coming to reign in the kingdom one day, and if you ever wanted to get a view of what that would be like, all that you need to do is look at the things that Jesus did while he was here upon the earth. He nearly wiped out disease in the country of Israel. In that three years of ministry, he did all of these miracles. He simply changed the landscape. Where there was no hope, Jesus gave hope. Now, we have a a remarkable statement that was made by a blind man who was healed in John chapter 9. He made a great comment. This blind man made a great comment when he was confronted by the hypocritical religious leaders. And in John chapter 9, verses 32 and 33, he said, Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And so the miracles, time after time, they attested to the fact that Jesus was the Christ. And the type of world that will be in the millennial age will be what Christ was doing. Virtually no sickness will be in that time. Sickness will be stamped out. There will be no recessions in the Lord's economy. A thousand years of perfect peace and righteousness. No recession. The uh, evil works of men will be virtually unknown because Jesus will stamp those out. He will limit the worst evil intentions of men. So it's hard to imagine what it would have been like. It's hard for us to really see what it would be like, uh, the excitement that Jesus' ministry generated. Everywhere he went, there were miracles. As we look at the beginning of chapter 8, there are three notable miracles that take place immediately after Jesus had finished the sermon. And so the people had listened to what he said. They were astonished at his doctrine. They wondered, how can he say such things? Where does he get the authority to teach this way? And Jesus walked down from that mountain after he preached the Sermon on the Mount, and he began to show them, immediately showing them why they should listen to him. And they couldn't refute anything that he said. They had to admit that he was a teacher sent from God. And those first three miracles that we see in chapter 8, those aren't the only ones. In verse number 16, we find that there were demon-possessed people that were brought to him, and he cast devils out of people. And then it follows up there and says that he healed all that were sick. So they kept bringing these people 
to him. So the three miracles that are recorded, that's, that's not all of it. Now, those happened probably in one day. And by the next day, there were hundreds of miracles that were done because they just kept bringing those sick people to him. And so you can see that the ministry of Jesus was full of disturbance. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, he shook everything up. The whole country in every direction was buzzing about him. And without all of the distractions like we have today, all the things that are going on in our lives, so many things coming at us from different directions, those people didn't have those kind of distractions. And so Jesus became the subject of every conversation. I mean, there was scarcely anybody who hadn't heard about him. And as you can well imagine, there were people that wanted to get in on this. They, they wanted to be friends with Jesus. Uh, they wanted to get close to him. They wanted to follow him around. They wanted to say that they'd met him, that they'd spoken to him. I mean, just like when people today are able to see a, a famous celebrity, uh, they want their friends to know that they've been to see this person and maybe even got a personal autograph. And this is the way these people were. They wanted to be able to get close to him and say, I've seen Jesus. I, I saw the miracles that he did. Now, today we're going to uh, notice some harsh realities about following Jesus. Was Jesus anxious to receive everyone who came to him? Did he receive all sorts of people? And did he take people in and say, you can become my disciple. You can follow me regardless of the kind of commitment that you have. Well, we're going to look into the scriptures today. and We're going to see what Jesus has to say about following him. Now, if you'll stand with me again for the reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse number 18. Matthew eight eighteen. Now, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would just open up our hearts to the message that you'd have us to know today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There is something that we need to notice right up front here as we begin the message today. Uh, there is no doubt that Jesus was God, and all of these miracles are recorded to show us, uh, to be convincing to us that he truly was the Son of God who's come to the earth. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was preaching, there was time after time when he drew attention to himself. He was actually the center of all of his teaching. He spoke with certainty and with authority. So there was no one who went away thinking, well, this can't be the Son of God. He can't be who he says that he is because Jesus was showing over and over again. And so if they were to deny that he was actually the Christ, they would deny what they'd seen with their own eyes. So there was no doubt that, that he was God. But we see also in this text that Jesus was human. He was subject to the same weaknesses of the flesh of any man. And I don't mean that he was subject to the sins of the flesh because he wasn't. But he was like us. He, he got tired. He was human. He had a human body. He felt tired. He got hungry. And he needed to rest. His ministry was filled with long days. Uh, there were people that were constantly coming to him. He was thronged with people. And so like you and me, he had to take time to stop and to get alone and to get some rest. 
This is what we see in verse number 18. Uh, There are great multitudes of people that are following where he went. And so he was right there next to the Sea of Galilee. And so he told his disciples to prepare a boat, and he was going to go to the other side of the sea. Uh, There he would get a little bit of rest. He'd be able to get into the boat, get away from the crowds, and to go to the other side of the sea. So this is what he is about to do. Well, just as he is preparing to get into the boat, he was approached by one of the scribes. And this man saw that Jesus was ready to depart. And here was a man who was right at the moment of decision. He may have thought that there was no time like now to follow Christ. And so he said, Jesus, I want to get in the boat with you. I want to go with you. I want to become your follower. I want to be one of your companions, and I will follow you wherever you go. Now, as we look at the text today, I want us to notice, first of all, the permanence of following Christ, the permanence of it. And when I say permanence, I mean that following Christ is not a part-time occupation. Following Jesus is not something that you do on Sunday morning. It's not something that you give just a few hours of the week to, and it's not something, as many of you will try or attempt to do, and that's to give just a few minutes to Jesus of your week. Now, if you're going to call yourself a true follower of Jesus Christ, it takes a commitment. It is a permanent thing. Now, the best way that I can describe a real believer is someone, it's someone who has made a radical commitment. There's a change of lifestyle, there's a change of thinking, there's a change in your friends, there's a change in your habits. Your whole life is turned upside down and inside out. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is 24 hours a day and it's seven days a week. It is a full-time commitment. And so that means that Jesus does not accept part-time followers. And if that's what you're looking for, you need to apply somewhere else because there aren't any jobs like that open in his kingdom. And if you get nothing else from reading through the Gospel of Matthew, you do need to understand this very clearly. Jesus is looking for followers. And he's looking for people who will make a commitment to him. Those who will make a permanent commitment, a full-time commitment, and those that are ready to take on the real hardships of discipleship. Now, I want to show you here that that automatically rules out two different types of disciples. It rules them out. First of all, it rules out discipleship that comes from excitement. Now, this is what I was talking about a moment ago. There was much excitement that was generated by Jesus' ministry. As I said a moment ago, Jesus was the subject of nearly every conversation. You can imagine in a world where every day was pretty much the same at a time when there are no great technological advancements, that people that were sick and people that were in their lives, they got up the next day, and that day was just like the day before. A person who got up sick had no hope. He's going to stay sick. He's not going to get any better. He couldn't be healed, especially those who had congenital defects and those that had terminal illnesses like leprosy. There was no hope for them. And so every day that they got up was just another day. And in a place like that, in a time like that, Jesus had more than rock star status because he's somebody that can do something different. So everybody wanted to get close to him. He generated excitement. And I think that's what we see in this first man. He came to Jesus. Now we notice here that he's a scribe. We know who the scribes are, don't we? We've seen them before as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew. 
The scribes are the law experts. The scribes are the educated religious elite. They have status among the people. These are the ones that that are stamped, approved, degreed ministers of God. And so to have a scribe that would come to Jesus and be a part of his ministry was sort of like pulling off a religious coup. This is the guy that you want. And and if this fellow were to come and join our ministry today, most likely we would roll out the red carpet for him. We'd be shouting hallelujah all day long. We'd prance across the stage and we'd say, guess what? A scribe has been saved. scribe actually wants to become a member of our church and he wants to follow Jesus with us. It'd be just like the priest over at St. Elizabeth Seton on Snyder, walking in here today and saying, I want to be a Baptist. I want you to baptize me, and I want to be a part of your ministry here. I want to join your church. Can you imagine what that would be like? What would we do? You know, I, I, I don't know a Baptist preacher who would turn that down. Uh, we would jump on that. Tonight, we'd have a testimony meeting. We'd call everybody in, and we'd say, you know, uh, we put a sign out front, and we'd say, come and hear this converted Roman Catholic priest. He's actually decided to become a Christian. And so we, we, would, we would really roll out the red carpet for somebody like that. And, you know, in fact, we did that last year. Uh, almost at this time of the year, actually, it's, it's about a year ago this Sunday, that we had Richard Bennett here. And we put his name out front on the sign, and there was a notice right underneath its name that said, Converted Roman Catholic Priest. And uh, we hoped that that would be a draw, that somebody would come in and see a Roman Catholic priest who's become a Baptist. He got saved, and he's become a part of us. Well, I think that's all we have in verse number 19. We have a man who's very excited. The healing ministry of Jesus was the greatest thing that he'd ever seen in all of his religious life. He'd never seen anything like this before. Now, today, you have people that follow TV evangelists around. Uh, They follow them in their healing crusades. They rent out these huge arenas. They fill those up, and people want to get close to come and hear them. Not one of them, not even one of them, has ever produced a verifiable miracle, and yet they generate excitement. People come to hear them. Now, what do you suppose would happen if all the miracles were real? If they were all verified, if the sicknesses of the worst sort... People were healed from those, and even people raised from the dead. How much excitement do you think a person like that would generate? You see, that's what it was like for this man. He was caught up in the excitement, and he was ready to make a quick decision. Jesus was ready to get into the boat, and he felt like he needed to go right then. He needed to climb into the boat with him and just follow Jesus everywhere he went. But Jesus didn't want that kind of a follower. He didn't want people to become followers of him because of excitement. Excitement is something that wears off quickly. When the cold, hard reality of what it's really like to follow Christ and the things that you have to go through for him, the excitement wears off very quickly. And Jesus did not want those type of disciples. Now, we also have to rule out discipleship that comes from emotion. People very easily get caught up in emotional responses. See, you can have a preacher that's really good at telling tear-jerking stories. And he can, he can work on the emotions of people. And they get teary-eyed. And they feel those heartstrings beginning to tug. And they're ready to move right then. And they want to make their commitment. And I'm sure there was much of this. They brought people to Jesus with terrible diseases. 
I can see parents that brought little children to him, some that were born blind, some born crippled, some with cleft palates, some with missing arms and shriveled legs, and Jesus healed them. Can you imagine how emotional that would be? Wouldn't that be an emotional thing to see? Jesus gathering all these people who have no hope to him, and he's healing them all and all these little children, and people get touched by that. And they're do-gooders in that group, and they want to be a part of that. But emotional responders do not make good Christians. The scribe may have felt this way also. Perhaps he was touched with the compassion of Jesus when he saw all the joy and the tears that accompanied all of that. When all of that was displayed, when people got healed, he wanted some of that. With a dismal world where there are so many problems, so many things going wrong, and Jesus can do that, he wanted a part of it. It was an emotional response, and so he's ready to go right then. Oh, there's a lot of excitement. There are a lot of emotions that people can get into, and they're ready to go right at that moment. They want to be a part of it. They want to know Jesus. They want to get close to him. But did you know that those are actually the kinds of disciples that Jesus spoke about when he gave the parable of the sower? I don't have time to go into all of that now, but do you remember there was one group of people that Jesus talked about, and he said there are some who receive the seed in stony places or on stony ground. And they grow up very quickly, but they actually have no root. There's a shallowness of the earth. And what he's speaking of there is a commitment that's not a lasting commitment. It's a commitment that doesn't go very deep. People spring up quickly. The plant comes up quickly. But when the sun comes out, the plant is scorched right away. Now, we notice here in Jesus' response that the sun came up. What Jesus did was he brought out the scorching sun, and he showed what it meant to follow him. It is a permanent commitment. There are days of healing, and there are days of excitement. All of that goes on. There are emotional highs, but there's also times of loneliness, nights of loneliness. There are hardships. There is persecution. There is humility. There's hunger. It's not an easy path. And Jesus is telling the man, you have to take all of that too. If you want to follow me, you have to be ready for that too. Now, I would strongly caution against ministries that count disciples because they've been pulled down an aisle. I would caution you about counting people that get very emotional because of stories. And they get very excited because they've heard some fire-breathing preaching. What you have to do is you have to wait a while, and you have to observe those people. See what happens when the sermon is over. See what happens when you have to leave this place and you have to go out there. When you're away from here, how does that person react then? Being a Christian is a permanent commitment. That means it's going to go with you to work. It means it's going to go with you at home. It's going to be there at home. And you'll encounter hostility in both of those places. If you want to be a true Christian and live like Christians live and give a testimony and a faith to Christ, it's going to be hard. There will be hostility. Being a Christian is there when you lose your job. It's being there when you lose your loved ones. And being a Christian is there when you have to make a stand against evil, when you have to choose between what's right and wrong. Being a Christian will be, will be there with you. Now, calling yourself a Christian in those times when you don't really have a commitment to him, it actually becomes a curse to you. 
because it's so hard to do, and you won't stick with it. But if you have the real kind of commitment that Jesus is talking about here, if you really are in Christ, then those times when you lose your job, and those times when you have financial failures, and those times when a loved one dies, then having that true commitment of Christ is such a blessing I can't even describe it to you. It's the only place that you'll be able to find your hope. So you have to stick with him. You have to be willing to be reviled, belittled, scorned, and persecuted for your faith. Now, I want you to notice, secondly, day, the priorities of following Christ. And a certain man, a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. This looks like a live convert. And I don't know too many preachers that that would give the same response that Jesus gave. You see, we're always giving gospel presentations where we tell people how great it's going to be when you become a Christian. Everything is going to be so easy. The life is going to be so good for you. All of your troubles are going to be over. And so we talk about happiness and we pass out giddiness and we give out the, the smiley buttons to people. Oh, it's great to be a Christian. Nobody sits a convert down and starts laying out all of the negatives. I don't know anybody who does this. We don't see preachers pushing would-be converts away. We're ready to sign them up right now. I mean, if they show the least bit of interest in what we're saying, we're ready to sign them up. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he started laying out a case for the reasons why you should not follow him or why you don't want to follow him. Now you'd say, well, why did he do such a thing? Why doesn't he get this guy while the getting is good? Why doesn't he grab him while he's hot? He's a hot prospect. Get him now. I mean, that's the right method, isn't it? Well, that is the method that's used by just about every evangelical ministry in the United States today. That's what they would do. Grab him right now. You see people streaming down the aisles with their decisions. They're hot to go right now. So you don't want to turn them loose. Because if you turn them loose... And there are some who even preach this way and tell you this. If you turn that person loose right then, you might not get them back. Jesus wasn't worried about the ones who wouldn't come back. He didn't want the ones who wouldn't come back. And so he didn't jump on them right then because, you see, he already knows the heart. He already knows what's going on inside of you. So what he did was he just shortened up the process. Because those that are not true believers, they will fall away. They don't stick with it. They blow up. They fizzle out. They can't hold on. And so Jesus short-circuited the process. He could read the heart. And so there's no point stringing anybody along here. And so he just weeds them out right up front. So when the scribe came to him, Jesus knew all of the reasons why he said, I want to follow you. He, He knew about the excitement. He knew about the emotions. He knew that had him... And so he just cuts to the chase, and he says, So, you want to follow me? Let me tell you what following me is all about. And then Jesus began with the priorities. Now, first of all, he says to this man, You'll have no place for your pillow. Verse number 20, And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, How do you deal with the prosperity gospel? Where can you find scriptures that refute the idea that's out there today of health, wealth, and prosperity? 
that Jesus wants every Christian to be healthy, wants every Christian to be prosperous, and you will be prosperous if you are a Christian. Where can you find Scripture to refute it? I don't find a better one than this one. It's right here. Jesus rejected the prosperity gospel when he made this statement to the scribe. Now, do you want to become a Christian because Joel Osteen told you that God's going to shower down buckets of money on you? And do you want to become a Christian because God doesn't want all of his followers to have hardships? And do you want to become a Christian because there's a guarantee of, of, of worldly success? Jesus shot all of that down with one statement. When you follow him, you have to get prepared to change your priorities. Dump all of your thoughts about materialism because Jesus says that true discipleship may mean that you have no place that you can call your home. You have no place to put your pillow. And Jesus lived that way. Other people helped him, of course, but every day for Jesus was an exercise of faith. Every night where he slept, every meal that he ate, that was faith in God. Now he says here, foxes have holes and birds have nests. Now, those are just very basic provisions, aren't they? A hole for a fox, a nest for a bird. A fox doesn't have a 52-inch TV in his hole. And a bird does not have a front-loading washing machine in her nest. These are very basic necessities. And then what Jesus says, You're, you will not even have the basic necessities. It may come down to that. You don't have, you have any of that. And notice also he says, The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Son of man. Now there we have an expression of Christ's humility. He lowered himself. He subjected himself to hardships. Here is the king of glory. He's the one who could have lived higher than any man on earth has ever lived if he chose to do so. But he humbled himself. Now, I hope that you'll take time to read the bulletin article this morning. Don't do that right now. Don't do it now. But read it a little bit later because I have a little excursus there on this saying, the son of man. This is the first time that Jesus uses it in the Gospel of Matthew. And really, it is an expression of his kingship. There's humility shown here, but it also shows us that Jesus truly is the king. And if you'll read that, you'll you understand a little bit better why I say that. But Jesus expects humility. He does not want you to make a name for yourself. He's not going to give you anything to make you noticeable. He wants total humility. He wants debasement. How many of you are really willing to live like that? Do Christians have houses to live in? Sure we do. Do you have a bed to sleep in at night? I think most of you probably do. Do you have a roof over your head? Yeah, you've got that too. You might have all of that. But the question for a real disciple of Jesus is could you live without it? Would you be willing to give that up for him? Or do you put all of your energy into the house that you live in And the car that you drive, do you put all of your resources into those things and maintaining all of those things? And what you do is you put God's business on the back burner. Jesus does not want that kind of discipleship. The priorities have to be straight to follow him. And so what he does here is he weeds everybody out right up front because he knows the ones that can make the right kind of commitment. A true commitment makes Jesus Lord of life. This man said, Master, I will follow you. He used the title Master here. And that's actually a huge step for a scribe because there were many of these people who wouldn't even admit that Jesus was the Master or any of his claims. 
But the man comes and he says, Master, is he ready for that kind of commitment? Master means that you are subordinate. It means that you're a servant. And a servant never takes care of his own needs. A servant is not concerned about himself. A servant is not there to be happy. A servant is not there to be prosperous. He's not there to be well-liked. None of that matters because the master is the one who is his concern. That's the priority of being a Christian. Jesus is Lord, and you don't get saved without that kind of commitment. And I know that there are people out there that are preaching, well, all that you really need is you need Jesus as your Savior. That's good enough. Jesus as your Savior. And then sometime later, if you decide or if it comes to you, then Jesus can become Lord of your life. No, no. Jesus doesn't permit that kind of discipleship. He does not save with that kind of commitment. He's the Lord. And if you want him, you have to take everything that goes with it. So Jesus stopped this man. He would not let this man follow him. Can you grasp that for just a moment? Jesus is telling this man, no, you can't follow me. And that's because Jesus did not want the baggage of fickle followers. So we saw this man's not ready for true discipleship. He read his mind and he said, you're not going to have a place for your pillow. And somewhere here between verses 20 and 21, this man fell out. The demands were too much. The priorities were not his priorities. And so he disappeared. Jesus yanked up that weed from the shallow earth with the real demands of discipleship. Well, it might not be the place to do this, but we do need to look at the second man. Now, I'm here in the middle of the priorities of discipleship, and what I want to do now is to bring the second man into the picture. Look at verse 21. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Now, here's another guy that shows up just before Jesus steps into the boat. He's ready to go. But he has a little bit of a hang-up here. He wants to follow Jesus, and he wants to make a commitment to follow him, but he's not quite ready just now, not right at this very moment. He wants to catch Jesus on the next boat trip. Now, there, there are two important issues that I want to address with this, and they fall under the headings of priorities. To this man, Jesus says, you'll have no money to make it. You'll have no money to make it. Now, this fellow's priority is making sure that he's financially able to make a commitment. How so? Well, he says, Lord, I have to first go and bury my father. (laughs) That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, is his father there laid out on the living room floor with a heart attack? And he needs to get home And put his father in the grave. He needs to bury him. And so he says to Jesus, I've got to go home and bury my father first. And Jesus says to him, no. No, you can't go home and do that. You have to follow me now. Come right now. Well, that sounds cruel, doesn't it? You mean I can't just have a little bit of time to go home and bury dear old dad? You mean I can't have a little bit of time to mourn for him? Well, what we're reading here is not all there is to the story. You see, this guy's dead. dad was not dead. He's not waiting for someone to put him in the ground. This is an expression that they used back then. And what it meant was that he's waiting for his father to die. His dad doesn't even have to be sick. You see, as a son, what he's saying here is, I need to stay here and I need to take care of my dad because as soon as my dad dies, then I'll have the family inheritance. 
All of my obligations will be over, and I'll have enough cash so I don't have to work, and so I can follow you around. Now, you see what he's doing here? He's working out the money situation. He's, he's worried about, how am I going to make it? And he didn't want to have this question come up later. He doesn't want to say, well, how am I going to survive now? How, how am I going to prepare for my old age? How am I going to buy enough clothes to wear? Where am I going to get my food to eat? And, and, and where can I get a hotel for the night? I've got to have money to follow Jesus. Well, I want you to notice something interesting when Jesus sent his disciples out, turn over to Mark chapter 6, just a few pages here. And in this chapter, Jesus has been doing a lot of healing. People are astounded, or he is astounded rather, at the unbelief of the people. Now remember back at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the people were astonished at what Jesus said. Now Jesus is astonished at their unbelief. They saw what he could do, but he wasn't getting too many followers. The whole thing about giving up things for him, that wasn't popular even though he was God. But notice what he tells his disciples as their last instructions before they go out to spread the gospel of the kingdom. Verse number 8. Now Jesus has been instructing them and he's commanding them. And verse 8 says, and commanded them, Jesus commanded them that they should not, that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no script, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. Now, we can look at that and we say, well, here's what Jesus says. I'm going to send you out there with all the provisions that you can take with you. Pack up all of your suitcases, stuff them all full, get your traveler's checks in order, call the credit card company, let them know you're going to be out of the area. You don't want them to cut your credit card off while you're traveling. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to send you out there with nothing. He says, take a staff. And I suppose he said that because the days are going to be long. They're going to be hard. You're going to need something to lean on. But other than that, he says, take no script. And that means don't take a tote bag, something that you can put bread in. Don't take any food with you. And notice what he says here, no money in your purse. In other words, you walk out of here without a dime. And now you depend on God to take care of you. You go out with the clothes that are on your back, and you don't even take two coats with you. Now, that's a pretty tall order, isn't it? A prosperity gospel? Jesus says, forget that. You have to leave it all behind. If those things concern you, then you can't follow me. Now, notice that Jesus even ups the ante a little bit here, and he makes it harder with the next statement. He says, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. What does that mean? Well, he means you can't leave any cord uncut. You can't leave any cord uncut. Let the dead bury their dead. Now, here is a man who's very concerned about family ties. He's holding on to the apron strings. He's somebody that's too attached to family to serve Christ. Now, sometimes being a Christian means that you have to let your family go. And I don't mean that a husband has to desert his wife when he becomes a Christian if she's not a believer. And I don't mean that a wife has to leave her husband because he's an unbeliever. I think the Bible teaches that a wife or a husband needs to be faithful to their mate. They need to be a good testimony to them. They need to show them the love of Christ. They need to try to lead them to Jesus. But when it comes to your husband or your wife or Jesus... You have to choose Jesus. If these people, if your mate gets into something that is not right, 
you have to take a stand. You can't be involved with sinful acts. You should love your husband or your wife, do all you can to see that they're saved, but you don't follow them in their sin. If it comes to a choice between your husband, your wife, or Jesus, you must take Jesus. And then there's also trouble that you have with other members of your family. Uh, Your other family members may cut you off because you've become a Christian, a true believer. Some of you that have come out of Catholic families, your family wants you to be at Mass for the burials. They want you to be there for all the rituals that they go through. But you have to cut that off. And you can't do this. You know, sometimes they'll say to you, well, if you'll come to my church, I'll go to yours. And you can't do that either because all that does is lend legitimacy to their false faith. You see, when you become a Christian, you have to forsake all to follow him because he doesn't take part-time followers. He doesn't take compromise. It's all of him or nothing of his. And so he says here, let the dead bury their dead. How do dead people bury dead people? What he means here, those that are spiritually dead, let them take care of the world. Let them go about their worldly business. And do you see something here? This is how Jesus classifies every person who has not trusted him. They are classified as being spiritually dead. He means that you are confined to the corruption of this world. He means you have no part in his world of the spirit. He says you're dead to him. And there is no stronger statement of what that means to be without Christ. So you may choose not to forsake all. You may choose not to follow him. You may choose wealth and worldly desires. And if so, you're dead. That's how he classifies you. And when the end comes, you won't be with him. If you won't follow him now, you won't have a chance to follow him later. Well, like this first man, the second man gets lost somewhere between verses 22 and 23. Because when Jesus got in the boat... Neither of these guys was with him. He got in. They weren't there. And so Jesus does not make a case for easy believism. He doesn't make a case for half-hearted Christianity. He does not make a case for running after him in order to receive a life of ease. There are no fickle followers that are allowed. So Jesus makes his own rules for discipleship. And you can't come without his priorities. Now, this next one's going to go quickly. So if you're getting anxious about what time you're going home, this is going to go fast, all right? The problems of following Christ. And I'll make it quick for you. There are four major problems of following him. There are four problems for fickle followers, and they'll always fall out with any one of these four. So I'm going to give them to you fastly. The first one is self-denial. Self-denial. At our men's retreat, Brother Ekno made this a little bit clearer. He says it the other way, denying self. And there's a difference between the two, if you care to explore that a little bit. You see, what some Roman Catholics do with self-denial is that they give up things for Lent. Tater chips, candy bars, something like that. Give up a little bit of pleasure, whip yourself a little bit or something. I'm not talking about that. Self-denial means stop being selfish. Now, here is the problem with that prosperity gospel I talked about a moment ago. Health, wealth, and prosperity, that is the most selfish plan that was ever devised. That is a tool of the devil because what it does, it puts you at the center of everything. And Jesus does not want you to be at the center of anything. He's the center. He's the center of it all. And it even goes further than that. He doesn't want you not only not in the center, but you come behind others as well. You're third down on that list or how many there are 
between you and, and, and God. You're, you're way down the list there somewhere. You can't be the center of everything. You have to deny self, crucify self. And that's what Jesus did. He was humble. He, he became, he called himself the son of man because of humility, denying self. Now, second is sacrifice. One man says to him, let me go and bury my dad. Let, let me collect the inheritance and then I'll be set to follow. Jesus doesn't need you to come with anything. He has the power to save, so that means he has the power to sustain. So give it all away. Give it all up if you want to have him. Don't, let, don't make those things your God. Thirdly is service. How many people are looking for a church, and the first question they always ask is, how can you take care of my needs? What kind of programs do you have at church? How, how, how are you going to make me feel good about things? How am I going to get the most out of what you do here? You know, I've heard those questions a thousand times. People call you up and say, what kind of program do you have at the church? What are you doing about this and what are you doing about that? But nobody ever calls me up and says, how could I serve God in your church? What do you want me to do? Where can I be of use? How can I benefit the body of Christ? Hardly anybody asks those questions. It's always about self. See letter A on your listening sheet. Are you ready to follow Christ? Because if you are, that means you have to come to him for service. This is not about you. It's about him. Fourthly is suffering. And I've saved the best for last because this is what people don't want. This is the thing they want the least. How are you going to get people to follow Christ if it involves suffering? How do you make the gospel attractive to people when Jesus said, I'm going to send you out there like sheep among wolves. I'm going to send you out there and you're going to be persecuted. People will hate you. How are you going to attract people to the gospel when Jesus says, if you trust Christ, they are going to just hate everything that you do? How are you going to get people to trust Christ when he says you're going to be reviled, you'll be persecuted? How are you going to do it when the Apostle Paul said, if you're going to follow Christ, that not only is it given on the behalf of Christ that you believe in him, but also that you suffer for his sake? Who starts a gospel message that way? Who goes to a convert and says, you're going to be hated, you're going to be reviled, you're going to be persecuted? That's what it means to follow Christ. How are you going to attract people with a gospel like that? And folks, here is where we see the miracle of the new birth. And that's because we can never make the gospel attractive enough to people that they'll want to receive it. The natural man will not receive the gospel of Christ because it's too hard. It's that self-denial. It's that hatred of self. It's giving things up. It's passing on the material things. It's making Christ everything. And your natural heart will not take that. It'll burst wide open if you try to stuff all that into it. And so what it takes then is for the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and change your heart and show you that Jesus Christ is everything. And to show you that, that he is the pearl of great price and, it, and whatever it takes to obtain him, that's what you'll do. That's what the Holy Spirit does to a person because we cannot make the gospel attract, attractive enough. Now, this is what Jesus then saw with these two men. He saw that they were not ready to make him everything. He saw that he was not the central thing that they were after. And so Jesus said, you can't follow me. He weeded them out right up front, 
Sooner or later, they're going to fall out. And as far as Jesus is concerned, sooner is better than later because what he doesn't want is selfish people messing up his church. So he says, you can't follow me that way. Now let me ask you something today. Are you really ready to get into the boat with Jesus? Are you really ready to step into his boat? It could mean that there's no place to call home. It could mean that you have no money. He may ask that. It means that you have to cut the cord of human relationships to obtain what matters the most. Now, folks, this is not talking about what it takes to get to a higher level of discipleship. You don't get saved, and then this is the second course. This is what you learn after you get saved, that now you can progress to get to this point. No, no, no. This is what it takes to get into the first place. If you want in with Christ, this is what you have to recognize right up front. And if you have reservations about following Jesus, what he's telling us here, you cannot be his disciple. Now, he asks for a lot, that's true, and he's not going to ask for less. But what he does show you is that when you receive him, when you take him, he's far greater than anything that you ever passed on. And you must receive him by sticking with him and what he wants you to do, and receiving him as Savior, and giving up everything that goes with the world. These are the real demands of discipleship. That's the cost of following Jesus. And if you're not ready for that, then you're not ready to be called his disciple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've seen in your word today. And Lord, I pray that you would lay it upon our hearts that we need to understand what being a true disciple of you entails. And Lord, that we would be willing to do that And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to someone's heart today and show them. May the Holy Spirit open up their heart today and see that the suffering, the hardships, the pain, and everything that goes with becoming a Christian is nothing because it's all temporal. It passes away here, and we have an eternal home in the heavens. Lord, speak to someone's heart today and show them the gospel of Jesus Christ, a true gospel, what it means to follow him. Bless as we sing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.